Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. There has been an escalation of tension between China, Taiwan and the United States in the wake of a visit to Taiwan by United States House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the first visit of such a rank in close to 30 years. While the visit validates Taiwan's democratic claims, it gives China an incentive to increase hostilities and increase the tension in the region. Here to discuss this in more detail than I've just outlined is Professor Nick Bisley, Dean of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, Nick. Good to be here, man. So if you can start by giving us a bit of a, a broad overview, what is the current status of Taiwan in all its ambiguity and glory in relation to China and the role and interests of the United States in all of this. Are you sitting comfortably? Yeah, well, <laughs> off we go. Uh, so, I mean, it's a legacy, really, of the, the Chinese Civil War. Prior to the Japanese invasion in the 1930s, China was involved in a basically a war for the future of the Republic of China between the communists and the nationalists. The Japanese invaded once they left and were defeated in 1945. That war basically recommenced and in 1949. Much to, I think, a lot of people's surprise at the time, uh, the communists came out victorious, established the People's Republic of China, and the nationalists uh, fled to this little island, Taiwan, and remained there ever since. And the status of the island is, of course, the principal point of dispute. Initially, after the PRC was first established in 1949, very few Western countries recognized communist China, and the Republic of China was was recognized internationally by most Western powers as China, and it held the seat at the United Nations. So representatives of Taiwan sat at the UN from the 1940s through until the 1970s. And it really wasn't until the famous Nixon to China moment in 1972 when the US essentially decided to shift how it was going to relate to the PRC as part of its broader Cold War competition with with the Soviet Union and withdrew its recognition of Taiwan and recognized one China. Mm. And that essentially led the way for all of the US allies to recognize one China. Most countries that are allied to the United States have a one China policy, which is to say there is one China. Taiwan does not have formal standing, so countries like Australia or Japan or the United States don't have diplomatic relations. There are not embassies. But of course, Taiwan exists as a country in all but name. You know, it has its own currency, it has its own airline, it has its own flag, it has its own passports. It is a distinct customs entity and, in fact, it is a member of APEC, which is a little interesting kind of sidebar. Mm. For the United States and most other countries, though, they manage this somewhat curious dance between one China, PRC, you're in charge, and a Taiwan that is I mean, a significant part of the regional economy. It's you know, key to semiconductor production and things like that. By essentially kind of saying, we don't have diplomatic relations, we have a Taipei business chamber of commerce representation, but it's an embassy in, in Taiwan. And essentially the kind of equilibrium up until relatively recently was to kind of follow the pattern of going, right, there's one China, you two over the long run will need to figure this one out and provided no one forces the hand of the other, i.e. neither Taiwan nor the PRC could unilaterally move in, in either direction. And you know what most people assumed up until probably about three or four years ago was that the Hong Kong model was going to eventually win. If you think of it as a kind of gravitational issue, China was just so big. 
and that it held out Hong Kong as this kind of model of the one country, two systems, and you can you can have your democracy and be part of yeah, but the it becomes Republic. a thousand paper cuts after a while, and yeah, and, and yeah. of course what the PRC did to to Hong Kong from around 2017, 2018, with the introduction of all of the security laws, which have you know essentially ended the idea of one country, two systems in Hong Kong now meant that for Taiwan, that option is now foreclosed. And of course, one other little point to make about Taiwan is that during the Cold War, and really up until the early 1990s, Taiwan was an authoritarian country. It wasn't a democracy. Mm. It was one of a number of authoritarian one-party dictatorships in Asia. So you had them in Korea, you had them in Taiwan, you had it in small Southeast Asian countries. And then through the 90s, you began to see this democratization process. So that what we have now in Taiwan is not just this country that's got this ambiguous status, but it is a fully-fledged, properly functioning democracy Mm. that stands in stark contrast to the political claim that the PRC makes. That is to say, communism is the only thing that can keep China and Chinese civilization together. And the actually not even tacit argument, the explicit argument that that the party state will often make, which is democracy is a dangerous, destabilizing alien force that isn't helpful. That is working across the tunnel straight. (laughs) And and, and of course, one other little thing was back in the 70s, when the PRC was really in a terrible state economically, the contrast between the dynamism of Taiwan's economy in the 70s and the you know, sheer you know, backwardness of the PRC mm. was also something that made the leadership of the party kind of sit up and go, if we're being outperformed by them, that little rump and that island that was a backwater that no one took particularly seriously, mm. we've got problems on our hands. It was a key catalyst to the reform program that, that Deng Xiaoping led in the 1970s. Mm. So that's the short version, but there are books and books <laughs> and books on this stuff because it is quite complex. Well, if you've got the situation of, as you say, one hand, as long as they don't force the other into action, and then got the United States, which with Pelosi's visit is essentially now changing it into a game of snap. What is going on in in this situation? There must have been an awareness that a visit by Pelosi to Taiwan would escalate the situation. So why has now been chosen for this when there's a war between Russia and the Ukraine in the region? And even domestically, the Democrats have very concerning midterms coming up in a few months' time. What's the, the catalyst for this happening now? Yeah, it's a testimony to the you know, the political system in the United States that it's, it's not a centralised system, it's a federal system, and there's a strong division of power between the legislative and the executive so that you, know, you can bet your bottom dollar, although the White House will be putting a positive spin on it, if they had control over Nancy Pelosi, there's no way in God's green earth she would have gone. Okay, so this is this is down to Pelosi. This is very much timing. very much driven from Congress. And it's probably worth just taking a couple of steps back around all of this, which is the US position on Taiwan, that idea of kind of strategic ambiguity, mm. which is all predicated on the idea that the US will not formally guarantee Taiwan security. The only thing it formally commits to is providing material so that Taiwan can defend itself. But the tacit promise has already been, you know, under the right circumstances, i.e. if China unilaterally starts an invasion, that the US will ride to the rescue. Mm. But it's deliberately been ambiguous about all of this so that it doesn't say to Taiwan, you have a guarantee because it doesn't want to encourage destabilizing behavior from the Taiwanese and it doesn't want to needlessly antagonize Beijing. That kind of strategic ambiguity has been in place for decades. In recent years, really as a result of 
what China has been doing under Xi Jinping from Xinjiang to Hong Kong to South China Sea, all of the assertive dimensions of its nationalist authoritarian instincts that she has been leading. Some people have been saying, you know, in, inside the United States, it's time to move away from strategic ambiguity, to call this thing as it is, which is to say, that's a democracy, it's a partner, and if you push them around, we're going to stop you. Mm. So that debate has begun in the United States publicly. It's been a hawkish position. It's for a long while has lived out in the fringes of the kind of muscular right of the Republican Party. But you've begun to see more kind of middle-of-the-road people. Richard Haas, the most prominent, who's the uh, head of the Council of Foreign Relations, he's written, you know, now's the time to end strategic ambiguity. So that's the kind of backdrop. And then at various points, Biden has committed what most people think is a gaffe, which is to say, of course we will defend Taiwan. And everyone goes, that's not the policy. Mm. He's done it twice. Yeah, it's it's happened too much for that. Yeah, to and Beijing seems they're going, yeah, okay, maybe once, maybe, but even then, okay, it's Biden. Biden is, has a political career of gaffes. Mm. In fact, I'm on the record of saying he would never be president because he was so gaff prone. But you know, what do I know? <laughs> There's all of that going on, and then Pelosi comes up and says, I'm going to go to. Taiwan. Now, of course, the original plan was she was going to go in April, but she got COVID, so it got delayed. And, uh, and I think what everyone had hoped is COVID, that gives her a fig leaf. Too much to get done. It's important things happening in domestic politics. Mm. No need to, to lead a congressional delegation to Taiwan. So why now? That is the real puzzle, and it is a hard one to figure out in one sense. But on the other hand, she's someone who made her name standing up to Taiwan. So she was a first-term Congresswoman in the early 1990s, she went to Tiananmen Square, held a public kind of vigil in Tiananmen Square in 1991, if memory serves correctly, consistently pushed on human rights, has castigated China on human rights issues as a congressperson, right? So you're not the Secretary of State or something. But nonetheless, as she's ascended the ranks in the Congress, you know, what she says matters more and more. But she insisted on going. So some people see it, certainly one version is, you know, this is the culmination of the career. If Um, not now, when? Yeah. Yeah. And also we, America, need to be standing up to what is going on in the region. We have a longstanding partner in Taiwan who is a a democracy of good standing, and we really need to show some solidarity with them. Mm. So that's, that's the kind of narrative from her point of view. And certainly it's one of these curious things that Congress is hideously divided on partisan terms in domestic politics, but even the crazy right of the Republican Party, and it's pretty crazy, is unified on what Speaker Pelosi has done. She's normally the cartoon villain of the Trumpian right. You say Nancy Pelosi, and it's sort of almost you get boos and hisses Mm. of the pandemic variety. And they all think what she's done is fantastic. Yeah, from the standpoint of standing up to China, that kind of attractive nature of it. And, you know, there is a version of events that says... And I'm not sure I fully buy this because it's a bit too coherent <laughs> as a play, which is this is basically forcing Washington's hand or forcing the White House hand. Whether or not it was the intention, that could ultimately yeah. play out. Yeah. Oh, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. And what's almost certain is that the Democrats will lose the House. She will no longer be the Speaker. She's 82. She's not going to be Speaker again. Mm. So you are, as Speaker of the House, third in line to the President. So you've got the President, the Vice President. If they both go down in some plane accident or something, the Speaker of the House is the president. So mm. it's a pretty symbolically significant role. 
she's gone and put gasoline on the fire. I think that happened with John Goodman's character in The West Wing. He was the Speaker of the House and suddenly he became President. Yeah. Gerald, Gerald Ford is yeah. the, is the oh, other. Oh, there we go. Okay, sorry. <laughs> is, the, is the real um, no. President. No. Anyway, vote one John Goodman. Okay, so the response from China indicates that there has been a serious breakdown then of diplomatic relationships with the United States and ultimately Taiwan. So there are two responses that they've uh, exercised. One is through diplomacy and I guess ultimately the economy initially as well. And then the military. So can we talk about those two a bit separately? Uh, how are they reacting diplomatically? And uh, in the last crisis, which was back in 95, 96, China kind of lacked the economic heft that they had to sanction Taiwan or the United States to make a difference. But now that has very much changed. So how is all of this playing out at the moment? So diplomatically, you've seen fiery language in foreign ministry officials. You've seen formal demarche, so that's a formal demand that foreign ministry in Beijing has issued to the Americans. The American ambassador in Beijing has been called in for a talking to. That's a sort of standard thing where you express your dissatisfaction. But we haven't seen the withdrawal of ambassadors. That's the next step. Mm. Um, or even the cutting off of diplomatic relations. That's the ultimate kind of diplomatic step. So there's lots of noise, but it's just noise at this point. It was already pretty bad. So this is sort of adding to the noise of disquiet in the bilateral relationship without really kind of ramping it up exponentially. Economically, as you said, a range of sanctions, quite targeted sanctions designed to annoy and irritate certain constituencies within Taiwan. So if you look at the list of things that they've banned from import from Taiwan into China, it's particular kind of seafood, it's various other things that you look at, it's such a quirky list, then as you dig into it, certainly if the reporting is to be believed, you know, these are sectors where the people who are prominent in those economic sectors are very closely aligned to the governing party in Taiwan, kind of needle particular elements. China's cut off supply of sand to Taiwan, which sand is, of course, part of construction. I was about to say, you, yeah. you want sand on an yeah. island. It's irritating and annoying without being, you know, cutting off the Taiwanese economy. The nuclear weapon, so to speak, on this front is computer chips. Mm. So Taiwan is the world's biggest supplier of really high-end microchips. And if they wanted to really, really hurt the Taiwanese economy, they could ban them. But of mm. course, that would have repercussions in China itself. So that's a choice that if they take it, that really means they're serious because they're prepared to suffer themselves to inflict pain. It's interesting how close to that they are getting, though. Made in Taiwan cannot be printed on goods that are coming out of Taiwan to China. I mean, there's lots of little things around that, but I think they're way off ratcheting things up to the point where they would cut off the supply of these crucial inputs into a lot of what China exports to the world. They've put in place these sanctions as a response to that visit. That's there and they're set and they're set until China feels as if it has made its point, get used to them. So they have also militarily begun to conduct drills in and around the Taiwan state in response to Pelosi's visit. It involves live missiles with some ships crossing into Taiwan territorial claims. So this all happened over the weekend and seems to be an indication that it will be ongoing and perhaps escalate further. Yeah, so the initial response, they even flagged this beforehand. Pelosi said, I'm coming. So they go, okay, we're going to do these things that laid it all out. And then she came and they said, okay, we're going to do it. And then they did it and they rolled it all out. Yeah. The thing that was regarded as most eyebrow raising was the way in which they conducted these live fire missiles all around Taiwan. So blockade-like effect 
because that's often been assumed that if when China is trying to physically reclaim Taiwan or Taiwan declares its independence and China says that you can't do this, the blockade would be what, what happens. And yeah. they're illustrating a, their capability on this front. But the thing that really kind of got people kind of a little disconcerted was the firing of missiles over Taiwan and then also firing missiles that landed in Japan's exclusive economic zone. So it showed not only what China could do, but the fact it's prepared to take risks and irritate Japan and just go, well, we can, we don't really care. Mm. Um, so mm. there's a lot, of, a lot of kind of symbolism in this. And what's probably most interesting to watch is how long these last. We've seen just this morning, the PRC's announced doing further drills a little to the north of Taiwan now and what goes on in and around the strait. I mean, prior to all of this happening, the PRC was was already doing a lot of things to create friction with Taiwan, doing a lot of military exercises in its air defense identification zone, which is admittedly very large for Taiwan, but doing things that were crossing the median line. So there's this imaginary line that runs roughly sort of northeast to southwest between Taiwan and the mainland that has been the de facto kind of border that both sides tend to respect. China's been ignoring that periodically. Mm. And it did that in this case. It has done it, yeah. um, Several ships crossing that line. And even before all of this, they said, you know, there was an issue earlier in the year where the PRC said, look, the Taiwan Strait is not international waters. Mm. Implication being, of course, that it's our territorial waters, which means the US Navy is not supposed to sail through it. The Australian Navy isn't supposed to sail through it, all these sort of things. Now, that was all probably just noise. But in the context of where we are now, all of that, the stakes have kind of just been ratcheted up that Mm. bit longer. Now, you mentioned the 1995-96 crisis. That went on for about eight or nine months. Yeah. It started in 95 with the visit by then-President Lee Tonghui to the United States, where he'd studied in the United States at Cornell University. There'd been an alumni function he'd been invited to. That was the Taiwan... The Taiwanese president had gone across to that. Alumni. Yeah, alumni events. Fundraisers, you know. (laughs) (laughs) When you get grumpy, when when the alumni office sends you your... put out your check, you can can let loose a barrage of missiles. And then it finished with the election, which was the first fully democratic presidential election in Taiwan. That's in March of 1996. So, yeah, most people looking at this, and certainly my best guess is, you know, settle in. We're going to be watching a lot of these kinds of live fire exercises, military operations in and around Taiwan for some time to come. In fact, it's difficult to see what ends it. Mm. The 95-96 was you had the election. But there isn't an obvious kind of end point like that yeah. where the election happens and then, okay, we can create a new equilibrium. Partly because we're in really early days. We're recording on the Monday, four or five days after all of this started off. But equally, you just look forward and think this is going to be politically very difficult given how bad the relationship between the US and China is for both sides to find a new acceptable mode of operation. Mm. And there is no obvious sort of trigger point that you go, okay, there's this. The military exercises will stop in the really kind of sending the ships out when the typhoon season really kicks off, probably the end of this month. But you can still find missiles and do those sorts of things, and typhoons don't last forever. So that'll give a bit of a lull, physical lull. It's difficult to see how this one unwinds. I don't want to say that China has been looking for an excuse as well to escalate the situation with Taiwan to further what their view of ownership is over the island. But at the same time, this was something that the U.S., escalated. Where the 
White House in particular would be frustrated is that it has long been clear you know, since January 2019 when Xi Jinping went on the record saying, you know, we will not pass the Taiwan problem down the generation. Mm. Okay, this is something we're going to act on whilst I'm in power. And of course, he's going to be in power for a while. That sort of shifted the time horizon, so to speak. But yeah, you know, this year, the big event for Xi Jinping is, of course, the National Party Congress happening November, sort of October, November. Yeah. We don't know exactly, but probably roughly that time frame. It's generally when it's held. He's got a not inconsiderable set of domestic challenges around the economy and COVID and the, the link between the two. And there's no way he would have wanted to do this. But given the context of, A, the significance of Taiwan for him and for nationalism in China and the like, and B, the Speaker of the House going there, he's mm. got to respond. Mm. You know, he's got to escalate these things in this way. Otherwise, he's seen to be weak He's and not matching his rhetoric and his, his claims about his leadership more broadly. So... That's why I think the White House would have wished anything other than Pelosi to travel at this point in time. Mm. Um, as you said at the top, there's a few things going on in the world. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And roiling an already pretty fractious region with, frankly, a needless, if you step back from it, a really needless trip by a Speaker of the House on her way out um, mm. and doing a grandstanding from their point of view. I'm not making a judgment on it, but that's you can see why they said, what are you doing? Don't mm, do this. Mm, mm. Can we finish uh, by taking a look at the region, uh, what their thoughts of it are, their concerns? Uh, two interesting things, three interesting things in development over the weekend is Japan's interest becoming more interested, given the missiles being launched and lobbed over their way into their economic zone. The Philippines getting assurances from Blinken that if anything kicks off in the South China Seas, the US will come to the Philippines' defence. Also, South Korea not wanting a bar of Nancy Pelosi's visit mm lest they antagonize China themselves by hosting her on the trip. Yeah, yeah. It's, Off you go. What's happening regionally? <laughs> it's tricky. Start with Japan. Japan has, firstly under Abe and now under Kishida, has increasingly publicly spoken about Taiwan and put Taiwan's standing and the status of the dispute as central to its own defense and security, mm. which, if you, again, step back from it, is a pretty significant departure from how they've generally thought about and tried to present their defense and security policy, which had always been the shadow of the Second World War is very, very long. But what these um, military exercises has revealed is exactly the quite reasonable thinking that Japan has. Any significant military confrontation over Taiwan is of fundamental importance to Japan. Just the physical geography of the archipelago is the importance of China and Taiwan to Japan's economy. And, of course, its desire to not live in a region in which China is the preeminent military power. Mm. You will continue to see it stand very publicly and visibly on the American side of the ledger on all of this one. Again, like the White House, one imagines that they really would have preferred this not to happen and not to have this confrontation. But once it starts and once the reaction from Beijing occurs the way it does, there's, there's only one way they can go. South Korea is the really interesting story because you know, you've got this relatively new government that had really up until the weekend talked a much more pro-American game like many like Australia South Korea has a fundamentally important security partnership with the US and China is by far its most important economic partner in mm. fact it's relative importance probably the most kind of exposed so to speak country both in terms of trade and investment much more than Australia in many respects when the new government came in they were like Nope, we're on the American side of all of this. We're going to have an Indo-Pacific strategy, which is code for saying we're on the American side of all of this. 
And then when Pelosi shows up, they're like, uh-uh. And there's good protocol reasons to saying the president doesn't meet with Speaker of the House. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to. You can go and speak, meet our Speaker of our House of Representatives. That's fine. And so that was a pretty interesting tell from the South Koreans that they were like, no, we want to keep some arm's length from this. And so the regional response has been one of weary resignation from allies because all of them were pretty annoyed that this happened just because anytime the temperature goes up, it's a hassle for everyone. Risks go up, everyone's blood pressure goes up. It's just yeah. a generally difficult time. Yeah. Most allies were annoyed also that they weren't really consulted, weren't really brought into the tent, weren't really prepared. This is how things go when you're a junior partner of a, of a country like the United States that's got this internal political structure that means these sorts of things can occur. But those countries that are trying to straddle the divide between the US and China find these moments particularly tricky because you want to be able to hide behind a rock and just kind of say no comment, no comment. But that's really difficult to do when what you've got is a declaration of solidarity between a you know democracy, an ally, a partner, and this thuggish authoritarian brutes that are hurling missiles at our friends in mm. Taipei. The optics of hiding behind a rock, diplomatically speaking, are, are quite tricky. And you saw Australia... I think, strike a pretty good and illustrative balance here of, of what most of the allies were doing, which is not to condemn China directly, immediately, but carefully worded, frame it over time, but also not to endorse Pelosi's visit either. And I think what everyone's hoping to do is just let's move on from this. Let's get to managing this crisis. Let's try to find a new equilibrium, try to figure out a way to get the US and China back to a slightly more productive bilateral mm. relationship. The other bigger problem, I think, looking across the region more generally is this visit has opened up cleavages in areas that used to be points of cooperation between the US and China, and as a result, for other partners in the region to work with China on, the most obvious one being climate change. Climate change, change yeah. You know, I had assumed that the PRC, even with the visit and the economic sanctions and the military exercises and things like that, that they would still keep open these other things because it's in their interest to do so. And yet they haven't. Mm. So China can cut off its nose despite its face on some of these issues. And that's probably the most disconcerting thing is that this visit has taken the bilateral tensions up a notch, obviously in the kind of military sense, but also it's opened up a political gap in other issue areas that had been the things that A, we needed to work on and B, thought could be the foundations for narrowing that gap. Now, whether that was kind of inevitable and this just happened to bring it forward, I'm not sure, but it certainly was not particularly helpful. When Pelosi announced all of this, I mean, I was one of those people who thought, oh, she can't possibly be doing this now. This is crazy mm. because of all of these things that are going to go wrong. And she did. And, and here we are. And I think we'll be living with this one for certainly months. And possibly, you know, this may be something that just sets a new pattern for how a fractured Asia is going to operate. Okay. Well, I'm glad that we have quite a number of rocks between here and Taiwan to hide behind, uh, notwithstanding Uluru. Not the first time when one should take comfort from the fact we're a long way from where the action is. Mm -hmm. Nick Beasley, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Matt. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and a multitude of other podcasting platforms. Please leave a review. They are very appreciated. You can follow Nick Bisley on Twitter. He is at Nick Bisley. You can follow Latrobe Asia. We are at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.